What difference can one organization make in a global pandemic? At Hopelink, the fact is that what we do, like there's no margin for error to let people down because they are counting on us so greatly. And so we needed to change what we were doing really fast and we needed to care about safety really, really imminently. We're living in uncertain times, surrounded by chaos, fear, even outrage. But a new world is emerging, putting forth beams of hope, healing, community, and recovery. Welcome to Luminaries in the Dark, hopeful stories about people pivoting their life and their work to rise above chaos and help those in need. I'm your host, Bruce Bracken. Today we're talking with Megan Altimore, Vice President of Community Services and Operational Excellence for HopeLink, an organization dedicated to supporting people on their path to exiting poverty. Today's conversation is part one of a very special two-part interview. Hi, Megan. Thank you for joining us on the show. Just to start us off, tell us a bit about yourself and what you do at HopeLink. Thank you, Bruce, for having me today. Megan Altimore, I'm the Vice President of Community Services and Operational Excellence for HopeLink. And HopeLink is a nonprofit that is headquartered in Redmond, Washington. And we are really focused on helping our community to deal with the issues that are included in experiencing poverty. How do we help people get stable? And how do we help people eventually exit poverty and get the skills and tools that they need? And so my job is to run a few of those programs and then also to really work on the excellence work, the quality work that we do to keep getting better and better. When you say excellence work, what, what does that mean? HopeLink is a community action agency, and we have things that range from food programs, which we'll talk about today, to transportation, to volunteers, to education for adults employment programs. We want to make sure that we are training our staff and our more than 4,000 volunteers appropriately for all of that work. We want to make sure that we're looking at the procedures. Are we safe? Are we equitable? Are we making sure that we're offering a consistent and really quality experience? And then that we use data. And so what is the data telling us that we should be doing differently, more, less for the community? So that's what happens throughout that excellence program. You mentioned 4,000 volunteers. Where do all these folks come from? And how far do the Arms of HopeLink reach out into the community? We serve King and Snohomish County. We think of it as sort of concentric circles going out. And so the community action work that we do, so our more what you could consider traditional human service programs, are North and East King County. And so from Shoreline all the way around through the Snoqualmie Valley. And then our transportation programs, if you have seen those DART buses that are out there or the community shuttles or the trail ride shuttles, we operate all of those throughout King County on a contract with King County Metro. And then we have our non-emergency medical transportation. And for that program, we are providing the connection to rides for medical transportation for Medicaid recipients. And that is all of King and Snohomish County. So we work with thousands of participants and we work with all the medical facilities in both of those counties as well. How do people get started in volunteering with HopeLink? We have an online portal that volunteers come to us and we can't keep up with the number of people who want to help, which is really amazing. And right now during COVID, we're not tapping even a teeny tiny fraction of the people who want to be able to help during this time. And so they come in through our volunteer portal and they sign up for a volunteer orientation. And then they decide what they want to do. Do they want to do 
interviews for our English for Work program, where they're doing mock interviews with English language learners, or become a mentor to a GED student. They might go glean vegetables out in the Snoqualmie Valley during the summer or work in our food banks. And the volunteers in our food banks are almost the equivalent of full-time staff. There are volunteers that we have who work unpaid more than 30 hours a week and have been doing this for more than 20 years. The dedication, the commitment, the knowledge that they've got is really incredible. But part of why right now we're being so careful around that is that they are also mostly retired, the folks who are working those types of hours in our food banks. And so we're being very careful about the risk factors too. But under normal circumstances, 4,000 people coming and they like do bark at our housing sites. They'll put mulch out. I mean, it really is incredible what people are willing to do to help. The Seattle area is home to a handful of large, well-known corporations. Have they gotten involved in helping out with your efforts? Oh, without a doubt. In fact, all of the big companies that you could name, they are all sending groups of volunteers throughout the year. They do team building events where they'll come and sort food or they'll do a food drive for us. They will help us clean up an apartment to get ready for the next tenant. They've done some big picture thinking with us. For instance, we were working with Amazon Recruiting on the challenge of recruiting bus drivers. So they were working through with us what they've done to recruit drivers. And Microsoft actually comes out to one of our housing sites every year. Through the United Way of King County Day of Caring, we have usually four or five sites that people come and do projects at our food banks or at our housing locations where we house families who had experienced homelessness. And at our property in Redmond, which is our largest property, for the last six or seven years, it's been the same Microsoft team that comes out and beautifies the property. They pull weeds, they clean up the landscaping, they mulch the whole property. And it's become part of their team dynamic that it's one of their events that they do every year. So it's really fun to see people come back year after year and, and experience that. And it's a big help for us because one, it beautifies the property and two, it's a cost saver too. Lots of different ways that the corporations get involved. And the Microsoft Give program is something that we've been involved in for the, the whole time that I've been at HopeLink and much longer than that. There used to be years ago, a dashboard that you could watch. And we were always in the top five, which was very exciting because it's international the support that is being given throughout that month. But the support of and the connection to Microsoft Philanthropies has been huge. And so the work that was done to put aside the lending program for affordable housing, HopeLink was invited to help launch that. And even though we are not an affordable housing developer, we're just one of the community partners to be able to spread the word that Microsoft was investing in the health of the community and trying to make sure that affordable housing was going to become more readily available for everyone, including the vendors and other folks that work on the Microsoft campuses that don't have the salaries to afford the living wage around here. We're all trying to figure out what the right next step is. And right at the beginning, we got an email from our contact at Microsoft Philanthropies, and they said, we're sending you a check. There's no strings to this. We just know you do good work, and we know you need it. And the faith in us that we were going to do the right thing with that just really meant so much to us. Have these companies engaged more now that we're in this current crisis or have they pivoted in the type of support that they're offering? Oh yeah, definitely. So they've always been very engaged, which is one of the things that sets them apart. But since this time, they've really been focused on what, what are the immediate needs. 
but they've also made sure that they've kept the work going on affordable housing because they have been doing advocacy work around that with local communities. And so they've done both simultaneously. But the most interesting pivot was that they worked with your real estate and facilities group who oversee the cafeterias. So the staff who are still being paid, who would normally have been providing the cafeteria food for Microsoft staff on campus, they were building box lunches. And every week, HopeLink and other nonprofits all around King County get thousands and thousands of these box lunches to then contribute out to the community. We get 2,600 boxes a week. And then we share ours. We send them out through our food program, but we also share ours with shelters in the community. So Congregations for the Homeless, the Sophia Way, the Friends of Youth Youth Shelter, and then also Imagine Housing, which is an affordable housing provider here on the east side. So uh, a really wide range. And, you know, it's such a small thing to think that these box lunches are going out there, but they're making a huge difference that someone comes to pick up food from HopeLink and they leave with something they could eat on the way home if they so chose. It's really making a big difference. And just as importantly to us, because we serve people who are experiencing poverty, the fact that Microsoft and other corporations around the region chose to continue to pay these hourly workers, that kept tens of thousands of people from needing to come to HopeLink to be able to get the basic needs services that we have. And so that also was a huge contribution in the health of the community, which then means that people aren't coming for that help. As much as we like people to call us and connect with us, it's a lot better if they don't need us. And so we were really grateful that Microsoft and other large companies made that choice. Who are the people you're trying to help with all of these services and programs? As a community action agency, at the federal level, they sort of think of that as anti-poverty programs. And to me, that's a little bit of a misnomer. We're against poverty, but we are very much for people who are experiencing poverty so that we can help change that situation with them. Really, you're looking at people who don't have enough resources to meet their basic needs. And here in this community, in in King County and in Snohomish County, there is a huge percentage of people who don't actually have enough resources, even though we are a wildly affluent area. And we did a community needs assessment a few years ago. And what the data shows us is that It takes 300% of the federal poverty level to actually meet your basic needs here. And so, for example, a study that is done through the University of Washington, for a family of four in Bellevue, living wage is $96,000 a year if they have two children. And so the concept of that, that $96,000 to meet your basic needs, and that doesn't include a car. And last year at HopeLink, half the people that we served through the community services programs had an income of less than $10,000. And so when you think about the gap from 10,000 to 96,000, it's overwhelming. And it speaks to the resilience that people in poverty have because they make it work, they figure it out. And that's what we capitalize on, that people have the own answers for their life. We're just helping to facilitate the next step. And so helping them have more resources, more skills, more tools. And so that's really who we're focused on. And so people who are experiencing poverty, we have a set of services that can help them. But we also partner with dozens or even hundreds of other agencies that do too. And so that together we make a bit of a web to be able to try to meet those needs. And then overarching all of that is the advocacy work that we do to try to change the systems that are creating situations where people are put into poverty. Certainly it all looks different now in the last two months. 
but that was a big situation we were already dealing with before COVID hit. I know you oversee the food assistance program. Yes, that is one of the community services that it's under my responsibility. And your program is a little unique in that it uses a grocery store model. So we have five grocery stores, actually, that in each of our main service centers, years ago, way back when these programs began, people would come with a box and they would get some canned food and they would leave. And it was fine. It was important that people were getting food, but it wasn't a connector. It wasn't a way to engage people in helping them really get what they needed to, again, to stabilize within this crisis of poverty. And so 12 years ago, we converted our first location to a grocery model. And we did this for several reasons, but the most important part was our value of dignity, of respect, of really helping people connect to us in a way that feels engaging, it feels welcoming to the people who are living in poverty because there's enough places where there's not welcome. And so this allows people to make choices to read labels, to allow for their cultural connection and their dietary needs, their religious needs. And so it's really been an important part of our decision-making. We just built two new facilities over the last three years, and we designed those grocery areas with, with intention that these would be really welcoming spaces that people would be able to spend some time and shop. And when children, for example, come into these spaces and they get themselves put in that little grocery cart, it doesn't feel any different than if they're at grocery warehouse or a little tiny Costco. And so that's really important to us. So we serve about 16,000 people a year through that program. People can come twice a month previously to shop. Now, of course, it looks a little different for safety measures, but we will get back to that grocery model when the time is right. I know how much food you uh, share out. Where does all this food come from? We give away about 4 million pounds of food a year, and 80% of that is donated. And so it's food drives, it's letter carriers drive where you get that little bag in the mailbox. Normally, the month of March would have been canned madness for us, where local companies compete to be able to raise the most food. And obviously, this year, that didn't end up happening. But in a typical year, they raise tens of thousands of pounds of food during that competition. And we also, I should mention too, we have emergency food that we provide as well. And so under normal circumstances, pre-COVID, anyone can come to a HopeLink door and say, I need some food. And they will be given an emergency bag. And if they are someone who is also experiencing homelessness and does not have access to a kitchen, they get a bag that is what we call no-cook food. And so it is pop cans that can just be eaten and we, we include utensils in there too. And we look for things that are in, of higher nutritional value. Another very important service that HopeLink offers, though I don't think it's as widely known as many of the other services, is the Non-Emergency Transportation Program. So that's actually two separate programs. We have the bus contract that comes through King County Metro, which is one body of work that we do. And then separately, we have our Non-Emergency Medical Transportation, which is actually coming down through the state's healthcare authority. And as part of the federal mandate for Medicaid, if you are on Medicaid, which means that financially you qualify to be able to get health insurance through this public program, you also qualify for assistance for transportation to get to and from your appointments. And every state does that. They fulfill that requirement a little bit differently. But the state of Washington chooses to have what they call brokers. And so the six brokers in the state of Washington 
They take in the calls for people who need to schedule those rides. They figure out what the best mode of transportation is. So is it a gas card for the gas for their car? Is it a bus pass? Or is it a ride, an actual physical ride? And in those circumstances, then it's a cab company that we would partner with to be able to arrange to schedule that ride. And so in those circumstances, we are then training those drivers and working with those private businesses to make sure that their drivers are prepared to safely transport someone who has a medical issue. And so it could be a dialysis treatment, it could be cancer treatment, it could be a wellness check for a child. Think about all the reasons why someone might go for a medical appointment. The recipient, the person who needs the care, they have their appointment with their physician and then they contact HopeLink to schedule that ride to get to and from. And we determine the best mode of transportation and then they get them all set up. There's lots of different variations to that, but the bulk of that work is our partnerships with the cab companies out there to be able to get people to and from their appointments. Here in Washington, Under normal times, we actually have staff members, one at Harborview and one at Seattle Children's, who are there where the social worker or staff member can just walk the person right over to our desk and arrange that ride to get someone home. Shortly after this year began, we were hit pretty quickly by this COVID-19 pandemic, and it threw everybody into a tailspin. I can only imagine with an organization like HopeLink, with so many workers and clients needing to be in such close proximity with each other, the chaos it has created. But let's start with you first. How did your life change when all of this hit? Yeah, wow. It's really been a wild ride. So just from a personal standpoint, I have a high school senior and a college sophomore. And so changing what life looks like for them and helping them navigate this has been a big focus. And at the same time, working longer hours and harder than I think I've ever worked in my career. And so managing all of that has really been emotional and exhausting. And there's been a lot of focus both at work and at home on self-care and how we're managing all of those pieces. And then at HopeLink, the fact is that What we do, like there's no margin for error to let people down because they are counting on us so greatly. And so we needed to change what we were doing really fast and we needed to care about safety really, really imminently. And one of my other responsibilities at HopeLink is uh, is our facilities and so the actual buildings that we have. And so working with our facilities director and making sure that we were making quick decisions that we were making as informed as you could. If you remember back to the end of February, early March, there was information flying out and some of it was right and some of it turned out to be completely wrong. (laughs) And so making those decisions with our leadership team. So our CEO, she formed a coronavirus response team that last week of February and we met twice a week and everything else that we did. So it was the entire leadership team of HopeLink, it was our facilities director and our safety manager, our communications director. Everything else we were working on stopped and we just focused on this. We made quick decisions and we communicated that out to our staff and our clients and our volunteers as quickly as we could. One of the first decisions that we had to make was stopping those in-person services. That non-emergency medical transportation, we have a call center that operates in Bellevue and there are reasons why It's a little clunkier, (laughs) the technology that we use. And of course, there's the really strong and important reasons of HIPAA laws 
that we not have people working at home to do that work. And it's a very enclosed space that they're in. There's 35 staff working in a not a huge room. And so the very first thing we had to do was make sure that we were protecting that facility so that we were keeping COVID out so that we didn't have to shut that service down because it's too important for people to be able to access their medical transportation. And so that was the first building that we closed to the public. So we still had staff coming in, but we closed it to the public. And little by little, we made more and more changes to be able to quickly over that first two weeks to adjust our services to be remote. We have our staff who are there taking the calls and we have the cab drivers, the cab companies that we work so closely with. And while they don't work for us, they are our partner and making sure that we are working with them to keep their drivers safe and the people that they're transporting. And so we had to make quick decisions in each one of these areas. What were we going to do about our housing and our financial assistance? Because, of course, people immediately lost their jobs. How were they going to pay their rent? And so pivoting each one of those services to be able to make sure we could still meet the need. The speed at which you all were able to organize, uh, assess the crisis, and pivot your services and programs with minimal downtime is phenomenal. While this level of pandemic is one that none of us have faced before, have there been experiences with other crises that you all were able to draw from? No. (laughs) So I will say we had one little secret weapon, and that was in our financial assistance work in that our director of that program was in Houston during Hurricane Harvey. And so for the financial assistance pivot that we did, drawing on her experience from that was hugely, hugely beneficial. But beyond that, we were all learning as we went. And we're fortunate to have a safety manager who is emergency management trained. And so she was able to draw on both her training and her contacts out in the community. Our facilities and and our transportation staff are experts in their fields, our food team. So we did draw on all of that expertise that people have in their individual areas. But the components of a pandemic were new to all of us. You said earlier that once the pandemic hit, there was a huge reduction in staff, down from the thousands that you normally have. Was this part of the implementation of safety measures? Yeah, so the volunteers, for safety's sake, we made the decision to stop utilizing volunteers entirely in those first couple weeks. We're communicating a lot with Olympia and and trying to see what might be coming. And we really felt like having as few face-to-face contacts as we can was what we were going to be focused on. Since then, with some safety measures in place of masks and social distancing and some other elements, we have brought probably about 20 or 30 volunteers back into the mix within our food program to be able to help us pack the boxes of food that we distribute and to actually distribute them to the community during those distribution hours, Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. But it's monumentally different than what it used to be in terms of the number of volunteers that we had on site. There's a little bit going on through our employment and education programs, but it's over the phone entirely. There's no face-to-face happening there, but it was a drastic reduction. And then as far as the staff reduction, We've been relatively fortunate that, first of all, we've been able to keep our staff in a paid status, which is is huge with this change, really working continually as the resources came through for the CARES Act, et cetera, to make sure that when we had staff that were not able to work because of childcare or health issues or whatever the concern might be, that we're connecting them with the right benefits as quickly as we possibly can. 
And then we did have instances. We were fortunate. We've had very few instances of actual COVID. We feel really, really lucky. Knock on my desk here. But there have been other issues that have come up. It's mostly been family care. So it's been child care or parental care that have kept people out of being able to actually fulfill their job. But we had to, we had to figure out very quickly how to get people working from home. What we've realized, and we're still grappling with this even 10 weeks in, we always knew there was a digital divide between people living in poverty and people not living in poverty. We weren't tracking that with our staff. We weren't tracking the digital divide with people who worked for us, that we were providing them the right office equipment in the office, but that didn't translate to their being able to provide that work from home. And so just today, I turned over to our our CTO the number of laptops that we have to get because of the number of people who are working on personal equipment at home because their desktop is sitting in one of the HopeLink locations. So there are elements of that. People who typically are younger staff, but they don't have Wi-Fi. They They work off their phone when they're home. So being able to make sure that we were helping them and not financially burdening staff who wouldn't normally have taken that on. And we have had a huge loss in revenue And so making sure that we're managing fiscally being responsible with our organization as well. So that component of the change of the pivot that we had to make has been pretty consuming. And our IT staff has done a phenomenal job of being able to cobble together. They actually went into the recycle pile to Frankenstein some laptops together. It's not a good situation, but it is allowing people to be able to work. And, you know, that's that's really important that they can still contact their clients and get in touch and find out what they need. So that digital component, that tech component, it's not to say we didn't know about it, but we weren't paying attention to it and we definitely needed to. So we are now, that's for sure. It is unfortunate that your staff can't get new laptops to better help them with their remote work, but it does sound very fortunate that you have highly qualified IT staff that can, as you said, uh, Frankenstein computer parts together so that at least folks can work from home. Uh, but from our earlier conversation, it sounds like there are some people who don't have the flexibility to be able to work from home. You mentioned the conversion of one of your buildings right off the bat for the transportation program so that there could be a safe work environment for the call center workers. Why can't the call center workers just do their call work from home? Yeah, that's a great question. So the the number one reason is HIPAA. So compliance with people's medical information. There needs to be two locked doors that they are behind in order to protect that information. We're not currently set up for people to have that type of environment at home. And that is our contractual obligation to the healthcare authority of the state of Washington. That's the main driver that we don't have a ton of control over. But the second piece is the technology. We're working on kind of an old clunky system. We're, we're working with a partner to develop a new system right now, but the technology makes it a little difficult and it's less reliable when people aren't there on that same shared network. That was the first big puzzle that our IT department had to figure out simultaneously with figuring out how to Frankenstein these laptops to get people working who could work from home to be able to do that. What they were able to do was set up satellite areas in our Redmond building, and then also get people in other spaces in our Bellevue building where the main call center is. And then we have a small satellite call center down at our Kent facility. And so that gave us a variety of places where the staff would be able to work 
if we did have an instance where we had an exposure and had to sanitize the building. And that did happen twice at our Bellevue facility. And because IT and our staff with the non-emergency medical transportation, because they had so carefully put that together, they were able to stay up with no downtime to be able to meet the needs of the community. So we feel really lucky that we had enough of a buffer that we were able to get that in place prior to that. But keeping those staff safe is is really important. And so now they are a team that normally would have worked together in this room is now split across quite a few different spaces. We're also working to make sure they stay connected and that they have ways to to connect with each other. And so that's been an important piece of it too. The emotional side, you know, the the self-care side has also been a piece that we've been paying attention to for all of our staff to make sure that they have what they need too. Emotional and mental health is an especially important focus for all of us during these chaotic times. So please join us next week for part two of our conversation with Megan Altimore, when we'll learn more about how HopeLink is addressing emotional health with their employees and clientele, along with how they are planning for what will be the new normal. To find out how you can support or get involved with HopeLink right now, check out the links in our show notes or go directly to hopelink.org. It's important during these uncertain times that we do what we can to help light the path through the darkness. I'm your host, Bruce Bracken, for Luminaries in the Dark. Stay safe, stay healthy.